Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Science Fiction. This podcast is a production of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the For the Birds edition of the show. My guest today has had a 40-plus year career as an esteemed writer. He's one of those authors that some people refer to as a writer's writer because so many novelists have found inspiration in his work. And I believe he's the only person to have earned both the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature and the World Fantasy Award for Lifetime Achievement. John Crowley is on the line with me now to talk about his latest novel, Ka, Dar Oakley in the Ruin of Emer, a Locus Award finalist, which came out towards the end of 2017, and the paperback came out just a couple months ago. Hey, John, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest on the show. Hi, Rob. Glad to be here. There's so much going on in your book, and I think it can be read on so many levels that I'm actually not sure where to begin. Uh, in some ways, a plot summary would have to take in basically all of human development because uh, the main character is a crow who goes by the name that's in the subtitle, Dar Oakley, and he moves through all these key periods during his various reincarnations, from the Iron Age in Europe and early Christian era to the Crow Indians in North America and the Civil War and the modern era and beyond. So I kind of thought I'd start by just asking you a really foundational question. How did the book come to be? What were the ideas that got you going? Well, first of all, um, there's my name, uh, which plays in, <laughs> into this to some extent. I wondered about that, actually, if that if that you've always had an affinity for, for crows, because that, those are the first four letters of your last name. Oh, yes. I think it does. I, I have always been fascinated by them. I think they're, they are amazing beings, and the more I've learned about them, especially in the, the kinds of knowledge that's been uh, gathering in the last 10 years or 15 years or so, they become more and more interesting the more you learn about them. And um, the more, the less like you uh, thought they were and more like a being who is, in some ways, on a plane with ourselves. I mean, it's, they're just amazing. Their intelligence has been proven uh, to be quite high for for an animal to, with a uh, brain that's about the size of, you know, a cashew. <laughs> they do very well. Um, and amazingly well. So that was one thing. I just, I, it was my own name and my, and the, and the interest and, and, uh, that I've taken in them all my life from the time I was a boy, uh, and used to watch them and listen to them. So that's one thing. And I, I don't know why, but I've always been sort of haunted also by the idea of writing about a gang of crows. I never found a place for this or found any kind of grounding for it um, for a long time. But I just kind of, every once in a while, I think, I ought to try that. And I imagined writing about a bunch of crows in the city. 
like inhabiting some you know old city park or something and causing trouble and arguing like like a kind of like a band of brigands or pirates or uh something like that but i never got any farther than that until i finally realized this uh concept of having a crow who lives through different human periods and engages with human beings um, I knew that I couldn't write just a regular talking animal novel on the kind of the watership down basis. I didn't want to do that at all. Uh, there had to be human beings in it. There had to be people. And uh, the varied opinions and thoughts and, of people in different eras. So that's what it came about. And to that extent, it's it's sort of a, uh, um, a journey novel uh, in the way it's sort of like um, <clears throat> Gulliver's Travels or something, where somebody goes from one strange world to another, all these worlds being quite strange to crows. But instead of arranging, arranged sort of geographically, though they do cover a great geography, they're arranged over time. Um, and they are predicated on the fact that the very first human beings that the crow, Dara Oakley, gets connected to in a Celtic world full of people, human beings who believe in the, that there is access to the land of the dead and that down there they have secrets and treasures and, and things of value that humans could get if they only tried. Dara Oakley goes down into that realm with uh, a young uh, woman who's going to become a seer in her tribe and with her goes after what they call the most precious thing. That's what they term the thing that brings immortality, the thing we've always been looking for, and everyone who's ever found it has almost immediately lost it. <laughs> and that's what happens in this story, too. The difference is that it's not the human being who gets the thing. It's Dar Oakley, almost by mistake. And he loses it, too, almost immediately, but he's had it long enough that he enters into this strange immortality where he keeps dying and then finding himself alive again in some other place and time. So that was what constituted the progress of the book. And it, it was originally written in, in, in the form of 12 separate incidents in Dara Oakley's Immortality. Then when it got published, I, they had to be made made into a story with a kind of a plot because uh, just to read about these separate adventures was thought by my publisher to be a little too much to ask of people. They're so weird. So in the end, it got a kind of it earned or gained a kind of a kind of plot. When you mentioned Gulliver's Travels, which is something I hadn't thought before, Gulliver's a human traveling among all these fantastical creatures. The That's right. <laughs> horses and the giants and the little yeah. people. And so Dar Oakley, there is that feeling that as he's looking at humans, he's by seeing us and human culture through his eyes, it's true. It seems sort of fantastical and even nonsensical. So it's a very interesting and revealing device. I mean, one thing I'm thinking of is the first time he encounters humans, and he first sees them battle for the first time, and it's mm-hmm. and it's baffling to him. I wondered if you could talk about that or maybe some of the other surprising things he discovers about humans. Well, it's true, and uh, that the when he first... Uh, observes a battle he can't figure out what they're doing at all they they are combating with one another rather and killing one another rather than in the ways of all the animals that he knows through 
kill things. They they kill things to eat, and they don't kill their own kind. They kill other things to eat. And these people, these these characters that he's come upon, kill one another and then don't eat them. So they can't figure that out at all. And then he as he observes them, he realizes that the winners in the battle tend to go around and and maltreat and cut up and defile the bodies of the of the ones that they killed. They are dead, but they're being cut up in this strange fashion. And as opposed to their own dead, who they cherish and wrap up again and treat almost as though they're not dead, but only sort of uh, immobilized. And he can't figure this out. Finally, he has to ask a raven who he comes upon, what is it that they're doing? He says, they act as though their own kind, their own people, are still somehow alive. And the raven explains to him, that is what human beings think. They think the dead people are still alive. Maybe not in their own bodies and their own bones now and here, but they are alive. And Darokli is baffled by this, and it's going to be the central question that he lives with throughout the rest of the uh, throughout the rest of the story. And in in a, in a second adventure after that first one, which is set in some sort of uh, Celtic uh, world a couple thousand years ago, I didn't I didn't care to define it any more than that because of course Darokli doesn't know <laughs> he's living in a Celtic world, but. Um, he lives also on, say, five or six hundred years later when he finds himself alive again, and it's now a Christian Celtic world. Actually, in the same place as the, as the world he died, first died in, but completely unrecognizable. And uh, now a whole different way of looking at who, what happens to the dead, why they die, where they go when they are dead, and all that is... Uh, is at, is the rule, and uh, Darokli has to figure out and counter that, all the time trying his best to both understand what's going on and take advantage of it when he can. When people are dead, you know that's what crows do. They eat dead people, and they're famous for it in all of mythology. I don't think they do it anymore because there's just not dead people lying around on the ground the way there was in the far past. But they, you know, everybody's seen them, you know, digging up at dead squirrels on the highway and stuff. They eat dead things. And is that why, may I say, you know, the, the, the term for a group of crows is called a murder of crows, which I find so odd? I think, I think that's what it is. It may well be. I don't know. All those, those names for groups of, of birds and animals are a little bit specious, if you know what I mean. It's their been made up by somebody. I don't know. I really don't know why they're called a murder of crows. I mean, a gaggle of geese is very easy, but uh, and a murder of crows, partly because they eat dead people, possibly. They don't kill them, but they do eat them. But it also may, may mean that um, they are famous for every once in a while killing one, uh, one of their number. This is a very disputed kind of event. But people have often seen it, that a whole bunch of crows will get together and start a huge clamor and yelling and carrying on for a certain amount of time. And then suddenly they'll go go silent and they all fly away. And it, but there's one dead one lying on the ground. And it's hard to believe that they didn't actually kill this one. 
for some wrong that he's done. This has long been believed that they have this kind of uh, drumhead court martials and kill one of their number for some crime they that they they did, or because that's a stranger that's tried to make its make his or her way in among the group, and uh, but isn't going to be allowed. Now, there's a lot, exactly insofar as this has been observed, there has been exactly as much reporting saying, no, 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 that never happens. That's all just legendary. But it's a big part of the Crow legend that this does happen. And it does happen in my book once. It doesn't actually end up with anybody being murdered, actually, but uh, it does happen. You describe a lot of their behavior, which does set them apart, yeah. that they mate for life. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's true. There are other birds that mate for life. Many hawks mate for life as well. And geese, uh, not necessarily domestic geese, but gray lag goose mates for life. Mm. They seem to have strong connections with each other, uh-huh. which lends itself to the kind of storytelling and experiences that Dar Oakley goes through. It is, that's true. And um, more than anything else that interested me in it was to try to picture not just a a crow having adventures in the human world, but a crow in a society of other crows and how he behaves or they behave toward him and how he deals with them because he has been part of a human world. So that makes him different. And they all know he's different. They all know he knows things that they might value or get something good from. But at the same time, they suspect him of like not really being a true crow. So he has to always kind of establish himself in any time period which he finds himself in so that he can be part of the crow world as well as uh, continuing his investigations into the human world. Well, he does seem to be moving in a human direction in that he he is very skeptical or curious, as you say. He has all these questions as he observes humans. And he seems to slowly adopt or experience some of their beliefs. I mean, he does, in fact, travel to this underworld and commune with the dead. And he also experiences human emotions. I mean, by the end, there was a a great passage where you describe him realizing that, you know, he's learned pity. He knows what pity feels like, and he's learned wonder. And in that passage, you're saying, and now he experiences the urge for vengeance, which is something completely alien to Crow culture. Yes, that's right. Yes, right. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed writing that that section a lot because it had that key thing in it, that he is going to experience a human, not only a human emotion, which is foreign to Crows, but it's an emotion that is central to fiction. Exactly right. It was like a bit of a horror story, you know. Here come right. the birds; they're gonna they're gonna plot right. something. But integral yeah. to that too is another quality that is very human, a very human capacity, which was to think ahead. And you you note that, or the narrator notes that that right. you know crows normally live in the present, and here yep. Dar Oakley was suddenly plotting a scheme to to yeah. exact vengeance against yeah. a man who had killed many many crows with his deceitful bird whistle. There's another scene way much farther earlier in the book 
where Dar Oakley has, and the monks and monks that he has gotten involved with in the Celtic world, and they've decided they're going to go uh, try to find the Isles of the Blessed on the other side of the ocean. And he's going to, he has kind of talked himself into going with them. And there's one moment when he, he watches them take their, this leather-sided boat out into the ocean. And they carry it, and they carry it down onto the shore upside down, because that's how they've built it, upside down. So, you know, you lay out the, the, the uh, wood uh, structures of it and lay leather over it and seal it up. And then you pick it up with a lot of whole bunch of people and carry it to the down to the water, wade into the water with it, and then try to turn it upside down, right side up. And they all have plans about how to do this, and each one of them has a job, and he thinks, that's amazing. It's just it's amazing to, to Dar Oakley, the crow, how they always think these things through and have a, have a goal in mind when they set out and then achieve it by having done it before and have practiced at it and are, you know, good at doing this and that they somehow seem to have an idea of what's going to happen in the future all the time, which the crows don't ever have or very rarely have. So it was it was really interesting in thinking that thing through trying to making it try to make it realistic. That is to say, if this were possible to be a crow that knows human beings and learns how to talk to human beings and who learn to talk to him, what would it really be like? What would he think about? What would they think about in in dealing with him? How would they regard him? And this was I, this was the thing that I kept uh, trying to make more deeper and richer as I went along, hoping that it wouldn't be seen as just a series of uh, funny fantasy adventures, but as a, a, a deeper thing than that. And of course, the thing that governs the whole story is death. Basically, um, it can be said that the book is a long meditation on death. It's about how the different ways in which human beings uh, have conceived of death, what it's meant to them, how they can conceive of, of people who are at once decayed and living in the ground, but at the same time uh, alive as much or even more than they were, uh, in some different and other place uh, that, that uh, you can travel to, and you can think about them, and maybe they can even come and talk to you, but they're also living dead uh, in the ground. And that's what you know where they, that's where they belong. And in a certain sense, you can't have them among you, dead people. They're gonna, that'll throw everything off. There's a story at the very end of the book where uh, Crow talks, or Dar Oakley talks to a coyote, who was the animal in the West somewhere. The, you know, the coyote is the great an, uh, animal god, in a way, trickster god of the Western Indians. And he was the one who created, who invented death for human beings so that you wouldn't have to live with them all the time. You got rid of them. You pushed them aside. You, you got them out of the way so you, as a, as a live human being, can live. And that's the kind of thing that Dar Oakley has, begins to perceive about human beings, too. Of course they've got to go away. You can't have dead people walking around. But somewhere, they are still alive, and you can, if the conditions are right, 
go and visit them and find out what they're doing, what they're up to. What's your feeling about that? Because, you know, in each in each time period, there's a different conception of death. And in each one, it seems to play itself out as if it were true under the rules of that that time mm-hmm. period. And there is something about the power of a story. Dar Oakley hears the story from a human and it comes to pass. Oh, yes. And I think that one of the things that Dar Oakley begins to learn is never exactly... Uh, laid out as such, but what he's learning is how stories govern the human world Uh, so that, in fact, it doesn't actually, it's not actually different to go into an underworld and have experiences there. Uh, It's not different from hearing a story about going into an underworld. When when Darokli in the Celtic world goes off to going down into the underworld, by which is the uh, um, access to it is through one of these huge, tumulus, ancient mounds that are found in that part of the world where there's, it's believed that not only are the dead inside there, but there's a whole world inside there if you dare to go into it. And you get into it, says the young woman who is Darokli's guide, you get into it by reading a story about it. And gradually, if you uh, read the story all the way through, you will succeed in getting into the land of the dead. What's the difference then between going to a land and hearing a story about it? It's actually the same thing. And that puzzles Darokli, of course, an enormous amount. How it is that human beings live on stories. There's another one when when Darokli isn't living in in, uh, America at some distant time before or just before um, Europeans uh, arrive and becomes friends with uh, a person who is a uh, storyteller. He's he's a member of an Indian tribe, but he is himself a storyteller. And that's his his own um, choice to become one. And he tells stories, some of which he hears from Dar Oakley. And he transmits stories about Darokli's experience as his own stories to his own people, except that he changes them. And Darokli is very annoyed by this. He says, that's not the way it went. I didn't tell him that. Where did he get that stuff? But, of course, the the right of the storyteller to alter the sources however he likes. And he does so. And in, and in the end, the story that the Indian tells which is more for amusement than anything else, is very much like the story of Dar Oakley. The story that Dar Oakley is living out, which is in in this particular uh, life and period, tragic in the end. So um, it, was, it was wonderful to think in those kinds of ways. I mean, I think that if you've written 13 or 14 novels <laughs> like I have, you cannot... In, a, in almost in every sentence, forget that you are in a story. You are not in uh, a world. You are in a unfolding uh, creation of words and stories, and that they are that they are um, the air you breathe here. They are the they are they are the material. They're all that everything that is is story and uh, 
So of course you have to refer to it. I don't know. I think it's odd, odd that that writers can write books and not refer to the to the fact that there are stories being told. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of writers I know, try to keep that out of it altogether. It spoils the illusion that they are in the world and not in a story. Well, it's interesting. You're making me think how just in ordinary life we live in in stories. I mean, if I, oh, yeah. you know, sit down with a friend we're not sitting there silently looking at each other, experiencing the moment. We're each telling each other stories about what we've done right. yesterday and the yes. day before and last week and what someone told us. And those really right. are... Some, something you read in a book. Something I read a in a book. Told in a book. <laughs> and, and whether it's truly accurate to the lived experience or to if someone else had been there, they might tell a different version of events. Right. And Right. You also have reasons to tell certain kinds of stories and not other kinds because of your own needs and your own relationship with the person you're you're talking with you tell different kinds of stories exactly but dar oakley has a unique experience i mean it's you know it's joyful and fun to read about him because through his various lives which seem like a form of reincarnation he's experienced life over millennia so that near our present he's hearing stories among the crows about the first crow who ever had a name and dar oakley's <laughs> going well that was me i was that one you know he's thinking so he's telling stories, he's hearing stories, and he's figuring in the stories within a story, too. Yeah, right. In fact, one of that, I, I, that was a, a thing that I really, really loved doing, was to set up the crows. Even though crows are not a society like human society, still there are things that happened very, very long time ago that still persist in traces and, and, and through, through the ages. And it was things that Dar Oakley did. Uh, the, one of my favorites is that Dar Oakley originally found out about names and uh, in the far, far past finds out about the fact of names which don't exist in crow world. They don't have names. Uh, they have like, you know, names for relatives, nephew, father, son, mother, but they don't have any actual names. Uh, but he finds out that the human beings give each other names and he, and he talks to this young girl who he's, who he's learned to speak with and says, why do you have names? What is that? It's well, a name. That's something that you that you maybe something that you did once, uh, or some place that you were that you so that you're associated with, and all that becomes a name. And that's how Dar Oakley gets his name. Oakley means you know, uh, oak tree by the field or the lee, oak by the lee. But of course, over time, it becomes Oakley, and he gives other crows names that. Are the same are formed in the same way. They're made partly out of an experience that you've had or a thing that you did, sort of like Native American names or some native kinds of Native American names. But then a thousand years later, they just turned into an ordinary human name, and uh, it's the same thing happens to crow names. And I just I really enjoyed doing that because it gave that sense of continuity that that actually centuries are passing as this crow world has been living apart from, but it often uh, wrapped up in the human world. And Dar Oakley, of course, can pass back and forth between the two of them. And how did you get into the mind of a crow? I suppose that's a challenge when a, a writer's working on a book to get into the mind of your character. There's different challenges and maybe different ways we do it, but when it's not just an ordinary character, but it's also 
a different animal entirely that has different behavior and uh, presumably different you know physical limitations or mm-hmm. strengths what did you do i imagine you spending a lot of time in the forest watching watching birds and crows i yes i i've all, i've often watched crows and i watched a lot of videos too and i read about them I read about the kinds of actual relationships that that can be shown to take place in crow society uh writers like bernd heinrich who wrote uh, ravens in winter and uh donald marsloff who wrote a whole book about crows and corvids. Um, I did a lot of research of that kind. Now, of course, none of these uh, scientific works or descriptive works are going to tell me um, exactly what I need to make them into characters in a story, which is an entirely different role. But at least it gives you things where you can organize the thinking of crows. For instance, one of the things that happens constantly, as I'm sure you noticed, is that the crows have an instinctive sense of geographical location. They know which way is north, and therefore which way is east and which way is west. They call it day-wise and uh, dark-wise, east and west. And they can never be wrong about it. They're never not able to know where north is and therefore southeast and west. And this changes how they live in the world. Um, because they have, they have no roads, they have no tracks, they have no maps. They know where they, they, know where they uh, belong, they know where their nests are, where their friends are, they know how far it takes to go from one place to another. But it's all happening in this sort of three-dimensional air world. It's not happening like, like for us uh, humans who have to follow markings on the on the land in order to know where we where we are and where we're going or we'll get lost we don't have instinctive senses of of directions my wife almost does actually uh but i don't <laughs> for sure well they say google maps has ruined everyone's uh even if people have an innate ability a sense of direction right. we've lost that because of technology <laughs> It does. I think that that's that may be. That's why my my wife won't even use G, she won't use GPS because she says no 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 that's wrong. I don't want that, that, that. What she's telling me to do is wrong. I'm not going to listen to that voice. I can figure this out better, and she usually can. But it's very rare for humans to have that kind of ge- geographical or locational uh, sense. But the crows do intimately, and it makes an entirely uh, different kind of life experience. And also, crows can see like four times farther and four times sharper, maybe more, ten times sharper, I don't know, than human beings, which which causes their relations in the world to be different, too. If you can see something far off that you're interested in, far farther than a human being could, then you take it into account in your world. You know you're going to fly there, or you're going to not fly, you're going to avoid that, uh, or you're taking an interest in it. But... Um, one thing that I didn't understand, and I'm, I'm sorry about it now, crow eyesight is much different. Their eyes are different. Their perception of, of uh, color and depth and things like that is different from ours. And to them, they can see uh, into the infrared and ultraviolet, not very far, but they can see in, into those realms where we can't. We stop at you know the beginning of ultraviolet. But they can see it, and to them, 
crows are just like brilliant colors. They have that sheen, you know, that kind of, you can sometimes see it on on many kinds of birds, especially dark birds. You can see a kind of sheen, slight sheen of color sure. in the darkness. And they, but that's in the, in the crow's perception of other crows, that's what they look like all the time. And it's brilliant. And you can tell them by the sheen of these colors that they give off. And I didn't know this when I wrote the book. And so they're, in fact, one of the things they, they say almost as a compliment in the, in, in the book, occasionally one crow will say to another, well, you're looking very black today, meaning you look good, you look healthy, you look, you look happy. Uh, but I was wrong. They don't look black. <laughs> don't tell. Don't tell. We'll, uh, we'll keep that a secret. No, I'm, like, I'm kidding. You can certainly publish that. <laughs> it's interesting because I think you're very self-accepting about having this example of an imperfection in your book. And I don't think all writers are like that. I think some people might you know, beat themselves up, but it certainly doesn't detract from the power or the beauty of your book. Um, and it, and it, I'm impressed how comfortable you are with stating that <laughs> that fact. And you can even laugh. Well, if about you've written it. if you've written enough books, you know, you've made enough mistakes over time that you have to you better get used to it. You know. Well, what's the process been like for you as uh, you know writing your thirteenth book as opposed to having written your first book? What lessons did you learn early on that you were able to apply and apply now as a writer? I I don't know that there were exactly lessons. Uh, that I could apply, but I did with the with with each book that I did, I learned a little bit more about how to go about this process, which you and I were talking about earlier, about how you build a world, um, what it's made of, and the kinds of perceptions and stories, and the sense of a ongoing, multiple, uh, faceted story. Uh, which is that kind of at the heart of uh, any novel. I, I just came to get be better at doing that. The first three or four, two or three short books I wrote were very simple in structure. They might be effective, but they were fairly simple. But then I took on um, a much larger kind of story, a sort of multi-generational family chronicle uh, that was both at once uh sort of a realistic story about human beings in trouble and doing stuff and dying and so on, but at the same time had an, had an element of, of uh, the supernatural and the mystical. Uh, there were fairies in the book, and, the, and some people could see them and, and interact with them, and some couldn't, most couldn't, but they weren't the kinds of fairies that... Uh, that are usual in fairy tales. They were different from that. And you're talking about Little Big. A little Big. Little Big is the name of it, yeah. But it also, it was entirely, and I mean, fairy tales are fairy tales. They're stories. And that whole book was governed also by story. And um, so now I'm, I'm uh, becoming more and more conscious, not only of the fact that I am engaged in applying or manipulating the rules and nature of stories in what I write. But I am sort of at the same time communicating that to readers. This is a story, and this is a story about a story. But I'm also engaged in keeping them from knowing that. 
engaging their feelings and engaging their attention in certain ways that they forget it's just a story or it's a story about a story and just like live in it in the way that you love to do when you're reading books. Uh, In some way, I want them to have the consciousness of their being in a story that is constructed for them and at the same time they are seem to be living free in a world where you know anything can happen and you just go from thing to thing and and learn as you go i think that that would be that to me is the the sort of blissful state of reading books and do you do a lot of reading i'm sure oh yes i mean i've read thousands of of novels i, mean, I don't know maybe not thousands but an awful lot over time and uh but uh i mean it was i was 17 or 18 or so when i started reading novels for a different reason than i had when i was a kid um when i was a kid you just absorb them and you're amazed by them and you're amazed by the language and and it just all kind of you absorb it all as you as you go but somewhere around you know college or after i started reading books to see how other writers had done the thing I wanted to do and which writers were doing it. Uh, that is to say, this this kind of balance between storytelling and telling about a story. There were key books to me that taught me, that definitely taught me, uh, that there were different and other ways to do it. Not that I could copy other writers' ways of doing it, but but uh, assured me that this is yes, this is what you want to do. You want to um, you want to be in a world where the, where story is primary, and where the reader is always poised or on a sort of a balance between this is just a story, and this is uh, I am engaged just as though this were reality. And uh, so books like 100 Years of Solitude did that for me. Uh, that was a, a very big uh, moment for me. Uh, Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, who could do in like three pages all of this uh, that I'm trying to do in hundreds of pages. Is it the fantastical elements that keep you aware that there's a storytelling at work? Well, that's the interesting part. I think that these are in some really, you could find them in, in certain kinds of, the same sort of thing. You know what Vladimir Nabokov said? All the great realist novels are fairy tales. In fact, Madame Bovary, Anna Karenina, all of them are, ju- are really just great fairy tales constructed by authors. They're not really <laughs> the real world. And I thought this was just a wonderful thing to, to say and yes if there is a fantasy element in it in a story um then the there's a, a certain kind of uh aid for you to make uh this balance between story and uh a uh immersion in the real work but it happens, the same thing kind of thing happens in, in realistic novels. I think um, sometimes when I've taught 
classes to students who want to learn to write fantasy or want to write fantasy stories. And they're in classes where other students are writing realistic stuff. I say, if if a story has some sort of flavor of uh, the mystic or the impossible or the uh, fantastical or the semi-seen kind of, that's because we have that in our lives. That's In human life on Earth, there's always that. When has there not been that? If you want to write a realistic novel, it ought to contain a little bit of the fantastical and the spiritual and the impossible, because life does. You can't have a realistic novel without it in a certain sense. I mean, I don't like, I don't particularly care for books that don't have something of that in it. Well, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on New Books and Science Fiction. Oh, that's great. That's my, my pleasure. I've been talking with John Crowley, or Crowley, I suppose we could say, the author of Ka Dar Oakley in the Ruin of Emer. Please subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction. If you subscribe, you'll be sure never to miss an episode. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And please, please leave a review on the Apple Store. I'd really appreciate it, and it helps other people find the show. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and thanks so much for listening.